there's plenty of like websites and like services out there that connect founders and investors. But I think a problem with a lot of them is that, you know, investors and like anyone else, I guess, for that matter, like nothing feels better than being let in on a secret. When all of a sudden you open up the floodgates, whether it's on the investor side or the founder side, you lose that, that specialness, that, that, you know, high touch curation that I try to strive for at first look. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with my good friend, Brian Fulmer. Born and raised in Cleveland, Brian has just recently boomeranged back to Cleveland after six years in New York City and starting his own company. Brian is the founder of First Look VC and DistroBox. He's a mentor at Techstars and A16Z, a managing partner of the First Look Syndicate, and a proud Ohio State alum. He previously led business development and strategic partnerships at XRC Labs, international operations at Victoria's Secret, and took his first startup through a technology startup accelerator in his hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Through his work at First Look VC, he's come to believe that founders are the dreamers in action who drive innovation, push the world forward, and create the bedrock of our economy. And in practice, he's focused on helping those exact founders build exciting brands and realize their visions. First Look is dedicated to cutting the friction and red tape between founders and investors by sending innovative products from emerging high-growth consumer brands directly to early-stage investors via their subscription box. In our conversation today, we explore how by connecting these two groups in a new, efficient, and practical way, Brian can uncover far more promising brands than before and begin to rewrite the script on consumer investing. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Fulmer. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. This is great. It is good. I, you know, offline, you and I have been uh, riffing over the last few months on Cleveland, on startups since since you moved back to to town. And I, I feel like today we can unpack a lot of the conversations that that we've already had a bit. But I am uh, excited to have you on to uh, to share your story because, for one. I think you're you're generally pretty funny, so I think you'll be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will be good. But also, I you know I've just I've loved your your passion uh, for for Cleveland and and you know your optimism about the city and and also you know we'll, we'll talk about you know, yourself as an entrepreneur. But but thank you again for for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is great. And yeah, I always wonder what you thought when uh, Eric connected <laughs> us like a year year and a half ago, and you're like, who the hell is this guy like coming in hot back to Cleveland? But yeah, appreciate uh, you having me on. I'm excited. Absolutely. Well, yeah, maybe um, you know, kind of round out your your story a bit here. Boomeranging back to to Cleveland, you know, just share a little bit about your your path and uh, you know how uh, <laughs> how we're we're on the podcast here today. Yeah, definitely. So, born and raised in Cleveland, went to Brexel Bravi Heights High School, and then like all good Ohio boys, went to Ohio State after school. After I graduated, that's when basically I kind of got the first taste of the startup world, the VC world. I was working at a startup accelerator here in Cleveland that unfortunately is no longer in existence, or at least the Cleveland office is not. I'm not sure if you remember Bizdom. Mm, it was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, when it, I when I moved to Cleveland, I originally was working in Startmart, which uh, I think 
<laughs> I think had acquired all the the wisdom assets, perhaps. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right there in Tower City. Right in Tower City. Um, yeah. But yeah, while I was I was working there, and uh, I just was like, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. It's just like be around founders, be in this investment community. And while I was working there, I, uh, you know, and I was like part of the invest, you know, the committee that screens a lot of our applications and sort of get a feel for like what they were looking for. And I actually submitted an idea that I had been working on on the side to get into the program. I'm not going to say like I knew the questions that they would be asking, but I had a general idea of, you know, like what, <laughs> what they care about. And uh, yeah, ended up getting into the program. And I went from, you know, employee to founder overnight. Unfortunately, that startup didn't work out. I was essentially trying to create a website that connected sports fans who have a certain team they love with bars that support a certain team. So they're traditionally oh, called yeah. back, backer bars. And Cleveland and the Cleveland Browns have one of the largest backer bar networks in the world. For sure. And I know in, in New York, it's like it's a, yeah. it's like a, a destination. Yeah. And in every city has these bars. Funny enough, Buffalo has Bill's Mafia has the largest network, and you can find Bill's bars in Japan. I found one down in Cancun a few oh, years wow. ago. Yeah, which was uh, I loved popping in there because they had all the all the games on on a Sunday. But uh, but yeah, I tried to start this site, and this was before you know there was Wix or any of these websites that helped you build real quick. So took a bit of time to actually build the site, build the database behind it to make it run. And unfortunately, we just couldn't get enough traction to get to that next level and raise that next round. So had to shut that down. But once I got a taste of, you know, startup life, basically being your own boss, working with so many smart folks around you, I was like, I got to get back to this. Jumped into corporate retail for a bit, worked at Abercrombie's headquarters and then Victoria's Secret's headquarters down in Columbus. VS got me out to New York City where I was at the office there. And then I jumped on board with a startup accelerator in New York uh, called XRC Labs. And they invest primarily in retail tech, consumer marketplaces, and then consumer brands. Yeah. And um, yeah, while I was working there, you know, essentially came up with the idea for First Look, eventually started it. And then it was always my dream to move back to Cleveland because, you know, being here in the startup community when I was at Bizdom and building backerbar.com, I was like, I got to get back to Cleveland and like put basically Cleveland on the map when it comes to like startups and investing. And I always knew I wanted to move home just because, you know, this is where I grew up. This is where I want to start a family. It's where my family and friends are already at. So basically just being a diehard Clevelander, I was like, I knew I had to come back eventually, but I needed to, you know, build a little bit of a track record, you know, build some, uh, some connections in New York. And then once I had that, it'd be the right time to move back. So having ultimately done that, we can we can talk about you know first look and 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 the the impetus for all that. But before we we even get there, what what was it about the consumer space that kind of you know drew your your attention? Given kind of the like breadth of things that that are in the startup world, what what is it about you know consumer that that resonates? I mean, part of it was just working at XRC Labs and their heavy focus on consumer. So you know, I immediately started getting experience in that space. But, and you know, maybe if I worked at a tech accelerator, it might have been a different story. But I just love consumer because there's a lot of psychology that goes into why people gravitate towards one product or another. You know, in, in tech, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but 
I feel it's a bit more straightforward and like this tool solves this problem for me. And I'm just going to arguably use the best tool there is out there to solve whatever I'm doing, you know, whether it's on a computer or whatnot. But consumer though, it's way more unpredictability when it comes to like why people buy this brand over another. Sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time. Sometimes it's because, oh, a celebrity is behind this brand and I admire that celebrity. And sometimes just plain old, the product's great and I'm going to drive an extra distance or, you know, go online and order it, even though it might be a little bit more for shipping because I just love the taste of it. So yes, I, I just find that the, the psychology behind consumer brands is far more interesting compared to tech. But I could be wrong. I don't know enough about tech to have <laughs> a solid answer there. I just love the, uh, yeah, the, the psychology side of things for consumer. Yeah, no, I think that I think that checks out because I don't know. Ultimately, on the on the on the tech or you know air quote software side of things, at the end of the day, it's still like people behind the the machines, you know, do, doing the stuff. So you you can't like you're still working with people, and when you're when you're working with people, the psychology comes into play. But the I think the there is this like unpredictability and real intrigue around like why certain brands end up you know, taking off when others wouldn't. And it, it feels hard in, in the moment to like try and gauge why that might be, you know, one, one brand over another. Well, you know, how it, how it resonates in the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, 100%. It, it's kind of wild because I'll see some brands that are like, this product's unbelievable. Like, and all of a sudden they like barely get out of the gates and then they just die. And you're like, how the hell did this not turn into a, a smash hit? And there's a lot of other things that kind of come into play there. Uh, and then there'll be brands that like arguably, I don't know, either don't taste that great or work that well. And like, they end up like murdering it. And you're like, wow, I <laughs> did not see this coming, but you did something right. So it's yeah. interesting. I remember first be, like being made aware of the power of brands, I think in college when I just, I feel like over the course of a year, Canada Goose like just blew up in a way. And I was like, you know, there are a lot of warm jackets out there. You know, well, why is this particular brand blowing up in the the way that it is? And it, and it I don't know that I've ever understood it, but it, I think that was when I first became very acutely aware that like there's weird psychology going on. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because there's a lot of brands that like to tout that they have this large community behind them. And that's what's, you know, a big driving force of why they're growing or why they'll continue to grow. But unfortunately, a lot of founders mistake a community with an audience. So one of the things I always like to say is a community is what happens when the brand leaves the room. So essentially, if the brand's not there driving the conversation, is the are those people still talking to each other and talking about your brand? And if they're not, then you just have an audience. If they are still talking about you, that's good. You do have a community. And then there's basically two types of communities. There's communities where like, you know, for example, one of the brands I worked with, uh, Belly Welly, they have these kind of brownie bites that are uh, designed for people that have IBS. And like they chat with each other a lot because IBS is, you know, there's a lot of issues with that and they like to figure out, you know, what's the best time to eat or what to eat. But then there's the community side of products where buying a certain product as a consumer, I want other people to think of me in a certain light where, you know, and I always saw it's the, it's a great place where if you have a product where people want to leave it out on their countertop, on their table, because, you know, when you, when you invite your friends over for like a dinner party or whatever, you know, you kind of want your friends to see like, Oh, you, Oh, wow. You, you, you buy that product or you have, you know, you use that. 
And like, yeah, I, I, cause I'm a, you know, I'm either a smart consumer or a savvy consumer. I care about my health. I don't know if flexing is the right word, but you certainly want <laughs> to signal to other people that I am a buyer of this product because I like what it stands for. So it's almost in some respects, a silent community where maybe they're not directly talking about it when their friends come over for a dinner date, but maybe they'll see the product. Like, oh, you, you buy that. How do you like it? And like, and then they start talking about it. So it's interesting, the community side of things and like, yeah, again, back in the psychology, what drives everything. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the indulgence of that detour, but <laughs> I, I think, I think it, it might be helpful at this point to understand, you know, first look and maybe just give us a little bit of an overview of, of what it is. And I don't know, as you were, you know, coming out of that accelerator work, you know, how you were thinking about what you wanted to do next and, and how it, you know, kind of took the form of a first look when it was starting. So high level first look is pretty fun concept. Each month I take about seven, sometimes eight brands, uh, pop their samples in a box, send those boxes out to a bunch of early stage investors. They get to try everything. Uh, I create a data room for the brands so the investors can learn about them, see their story, uh, their traction, you know, their passion behind what they're doing. And most importantly, they get to look through their pitch decks. And then afterwards, the investors fill out a short form where they're for the most part, just picking the brands they want to connect with. And then once I get those picks, I loop everybody together in email and let them take it away from there. So the best way I'd like to sum up first look is we're shark tank in a box. <laughs> so you got to have a good punchline. I feel like that helps with connecting dots. But yeah, it came, the idea came from, so when I was working at XRC Labs, we would always have um, brands would send us sample product to our office, cases of whatever drink or, you know, whatever product. And, Half the time we were even talking to those brands. So I was thinking like, all right, if they're sending us product and we're not even talking to them yet, and we're just a, an accelerator, we're not even a straightforward like VC firm. They got to be sending product to everyone else out there, which, you know, it gets expensive sending product all over the place. And it's just a hassle to like find investors that would be interested in what you're building. So it just kind of hit me one day. I was bike riding or near Battery Park. I remember the exact moment and the exact spot I was in that like it hit me. I was like, there should just be a box that curates the best of the best brands and helps turn that one-to-one grind of finding investors and sending the product, turning it into a one-to-many type situation. Yeah. Couldn't stop thinking about it. Ran it by a few, you know, investors that friends I had made in the community and for the most part, everyone loved it. The business model was still up for debate at that point. But I got a lot of great feedback. And then finally, yeah, in the fall of 2019, I uh, decided to go full time on it. Here we are today. So it was a true epiphany, you know, spur of the moment inspiration. Yeah, it, it I mean, I don't know if it was the exercising part that got the creative juices flowing. But I mean, you know, it helped too to like being in that space because I, I always knew I wanted to start another company again. And I figured, all right, if I don't have an idea just yet, the best thing I can do is at least work at a place where there are other founders, there's ideas floating around, there's, you know, just learning everything there is to learn about starting a company before you even have an idea. And yeah, working there, I kind of saw the problem firsthand of what founders were dealing with. And then once the idea came to me, I'm like, this is it. I'm going for it. If that was the the challenge for for founders, you know, trying to get attention, get distribution, access to, to investors. What did the status quo feel like from the investor side of the, the coin? 
Oh man, that's an interesting question. The spectrum of investors, well, first and foremost, investors always want to see more deals. It's largely a numbers game to try to figure out who's going to have the best chance of being a winning investment. Now, the appetite for investors of whether they want to pay for a first look membership, that is a funny and long list of conversations. Some investors have you know, no desire, like I would never pay for something like this. And I even had some investors say like, oh, you should charge the brands more and like cover our side of things. So it's free for us. I'm like, eh, probably not good luck since you're the one that has all the money and the founders are the ones that are broke, but appreciate the feedback. And then there are investors who are like, Brian, like 99 bucks a month, like this is nothing. Like you're arguably like undercharging for the value and service that you provide. So it's been interesting. You know, is you can't build something that's for everybody. You got to find those people that it does resonate with. And like we're doing a great job at that. But it is funny that for the, you know, and even when I have this conversation with investors who are, you know, proponents of First Look, man, some of the things they say about the investors when I tell them that like, oh yeah, some people just don't like it. Like they like dog on them. Like like any investor that thinks this is too expensive, they shouldn't be investing. I'm like, I agree. But unfortunately, <laughs> there are people out there that beg it differ. So the investor side is interesting. But then in the day, more deal flow is always a great thing. And if you can try the product out before you even jump on a conversation, it saves time because at the early stage of investing, especially for angels, VCs, not as much, but regardless, it's hard to invest in a product that you don't genuinely like yourself. I have, I have some investors who are like, you know, a few I've come across are like, Brian, I really actually couldn't care what it tastes like or, you know, what the, how this works. If they're making money, I'm in. But that's the minority. I would say 95% of investors do follow this thesis where I have to at least like the product before I invest. And if I don't like it, I'm out. With that, what does the first box look like? You know, how do you how do you take this idea and and piece it together in reality? So this is a wild story. So started going full time in twenty nine fall twenty nineteen. Stupidly filed out filed my incorporation papers in November, not realizing I have to pay taxes now, even though I haven't even launched anything. <laughs> and then it was on Tuesday, March tenth. I did my first LinkedIn post of like, hey everybody, like come check out this new company I'm starting you know, finally finished building the site out. And two days later, COVID was officially like here. It was in New York. There was like, I, I'll remember it perfectly. It was like, there was runs on the grocery stores. I remember being a part of it. And I'm like, are you effing kidding me? Like, you know, the literally two days after I launched my company, a global pandemic kicks in. And it was tough at first, because I don't know if you remember, but like the first like month or so, if you talked about anything except COVID and like safety, people would look at you like you're like, what's wrong with you? And it's like, you know, I'm trying to like launch my brand here, like build it, like get the word out. And like, you know, you say something about your business or whatever, especially, yeah, trying to like promote your business. And people would be like, you know, hey, dummy, read the room. Like we're in a global pandemic. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know what you mean to do. Like I got to keep moving forward here. Finally, after that settled down, which I think it was the Burger King commercial. They were the first company that I saw that like actually used COVID as a means to keep pushing their business forward. Cause they had commercial what, on What their, was that commercial? It was for their drive-thrus and how their drive-thrus were all, you know, uh, you know, everything's like sanitized and there's a handoff that's like really mm -hmm. easy and you don't have to be nervous about going through drive-thrus. That was the first company I saw that like said, all right, COVID's here. 
we have to keep moving forward. So we're going to like not leverage COVID to make more money, but we're going to acknowledge that this is here and, but we need to keep, I don't know, existing, I guess. Yeah. So once that, you know, people kind of started settling into it a little bit and I went home to Cleveland for about two months. I remember leaving New York. I'm like, Oh, I'll be back here in like two weeks. This will blow over. No. <laughs> so it was kind of nice. Cause it was like, I was heads down on the business. Uh, no distractions could just keep cranking away, was starting to build the investor list, starting to find the brands for the first box. And then I moved back to New York June 1st. My apartment was literally nothing happened in there except just collecting dust. And yeah, started basically prepping the first boxes. We had 10 investors that, you know, some of them I knew from just working in the space and then some of them were new and was able to grab six brands and basically pitch them on like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And you could be a friend and help me out and let me do this. And uh, yeah, shipped the first boxes in like late June and haven't looked back since. But it was interesting because I'll, I'll never say that I'm happy COVID happened, but I also can't complain too much because when everything shut down, all of a sudden, all those, you know, networking events and, and, you know, fireside chats and all those opportunities that founders and investors would normally bump into each other, you know, after work, they all came to a halt. So all of a sudden, First Look became this like great tool to bridge that gap and bring founders and investors together. And uh, yeah, I think that was like a big part of like how we got that initial traction was because no one was meeting up with each other. And our box is all about connecting, you know, two sides together. So I'll take it. It worked out for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, the box, the boxes get delivered you know, the, the investors, the, the venture capitalists, they're, they're checking out, you know, the, the different offerings. What does it look like for, you know, an investment to be made? What, what, I guess, like, what are, what are the outcomes ideally that, that you're looking for? And maybe just kind of take us through from, from start to finish here, you know, a brand looking to break into to first look and get that, that access to distribution to, you know, investors on the other side of it. How, how are those uh, relationships facilitated and, and maybe, you know, how is that different or, you know, how, how is that kind of uh, interaction relative to what everyone's used to today? So as far as the brands go, I try to keep it simple. They either sign up on the website or I'll bump into someone somewhere or I'll just get intros from, you know, other founders or investors, whoever. I jump on a call with everyone and kind of go through my due diligence with them to make sure that everything checks out right. You know, I don't like to say that I'm here to pick the winners. I think my job is more about trying to figure out who has the least chance of winning. Cause like, I think there's still a lot of luck that comes into VC. So I'm not the one to say like, Oh yeah, this is an automatic like winner. Like you should put your money into it. But there are some folks that certainly aren't as far along or maybe they're just not as buttoned up as, I think investors are wanting, uh, wanting to see. But at the early stage, at the end of the day, these are all super early companies. Like what it comes down to is betting on the founder. You're betting on the right person that'll figure out, you know, the metrics and the core analysis and, and you know, LTV and CAC and all, all those things. The best founders figure that all out, you know, as time goes on. So my, I think my real job is just trying to figure out more about the person behind the brand. And not as much or not maybe critiquing as hard the brand itself as it is right now. But once I give them the green light, you know, I pick my set about seven or eight brands each month. They send me the product. I create a data room for them that has all their information in it. 
They go in the box, uh, which usually ships out around the 25th of each month. The investors get it and get to try everything, learn about the brands. And then once I, you know, the investors let me know who they want to connect with. It's like any normal intro from there. I just put them in an email and tell them connect and conquer. Thanks. And they're on their way. I don't really have any, I don't butt into the conversation or, or even continue that with the founder and investor. Once they're connected, I let them go from there. And, you know, if they say the right things to the investor that what the investor is looking for, as far as an investment opportunity, everything happens between them. So from, from your perspective, the most successful box is one where, you know, investments are made, brands get developed, yeah. capital is deployed, right? Like what, that, that's what that outcome is intended to be. Yeah, no, a hundred percent right. The, our North star metric is funds raised for brands. So I always, you know, it's a funny line. I have to toe between picking brands that I think are going to receive an investment and just picking brands that I think are just cool as hell. And this should exist in the world. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is great. I want them to do well. So I always just try to pick like, I don't know, the coolest brands and hope the investors kind of see the same thing that I'm seeing. But yeah, landing an investment is best case scenario. Unfortunately, or statistically, they're not going to raise. You know, first looks not a silver bullet. I can't make the investors write checks. Can't change the dynamics to just how hard it is to fundraise in general. You know, I'm not going to say first look is like a boom or bust business because what I've tried to do from day one is try to provide a lot of value for the founders beyond just fundraising or beyond just landing a check. So with each of them, I sit down and I do a full pitch deck review, whether it takes one hour, five hours, whatever it takes, try to share with them everything I know about, you know, what investors like to see in these decks and like how to think about their business. Uh, We have like a WhatsApp community for sampling opportunities that I add them to. There's a handful of other things that just, you know, other things that provide value because yeah, landing a check is hard. Like that's, that doesn't go away. Yeah. I think we've done a pretty good job of adding that value. So even if they don't raise, they still feel like this was a good opportunity to go through. Is that where the, the syndicate work that, that you started to do came into play was to kind of round out that opportunity or or how did that come in and is it, you know, related to first look? That came about in a different way. So, you know, our model right now is the investors have a membership to First Look, uh, which, yeah, is 99 bucks a month. And then the brands pay anywhere from 399 to 899 depending on their last 12 months revenue. Um, I try to make it as cheap as possible for everyone. I'm certainly not getting rich off this by any means, making just enough to cover my bills. Uh, but one thing I never wanted to do was do any sort of success fee. Or, you know, the brands have to give me advisory shares uh, by going through. My theory was that if I made it too expensive for the brands, I would scare away the best of the best. So, you know, when you think about like the VC landscape, there's always that like most brands get a lot of no's, a lot of investors pass. But there's always that like top one or two percent where like all of a sudden the tables turn and like investors are like trying to claw their way into rounds. And those are, you know, that's. Now, TBD, you know, TBD on whether those hot deals actually outperform the mean. I have yet to find data on that. But nonetheless, I never wanted to make first look too expensive and not have an opportunity where those founders could jump in. Because otherwise, you know, if I talk to them, they, and I'd be like, hey, you should jump in the box and it costs X amount of money. Or, you know, or I'm going to take, you know, success fee. They would be like, Brian, like we have investors like begging to be in our round. Like we don't need to go through your boxes per se. Like we're all right. And if I charge a success fee, they would have certainly never considered it. So I try to make it as cheap as, for that, cheap as possible for them. 
But because I don't take any success fee or equity or anything, I started the First Look Syndicate, which that's our way of, you know, kind of basically separating church and state where if we do like a brand, we'll pull together investors into an SPV and invest that way. That's my like only way of essentially getting a lottery ticket to some of these brands. But I definitely, yeah, I never always want to make it as cheap as possible for the brands because they don't, they don't got a lot of money at the end of the day. Like, they're trying to raise more. That's why, that's why they're out there. And the nice thing about the syndicate is it's like, yeah, I can start building a track record for myself as far as like, am I picking the right brands that are doing well? We'll see. What, what are some of your favorite brands that, you know, have come through that, that, you know, you've helped establish those relationships or, or in, invested in? Oh man. I mean, we've had 225 brands now go through and some of them are hella neat, hella cool. We'll see if they can scale or if this is something that, you know, can have a venture exit of some sort. And then some things are a little bit more simple, but like, it's just something that everyone can enjoy. So they might become big. One of the first companies that I thought was really cool was a company called Tropical. And they essentially took discarded coconut husks and compressed them down into charcoals for your grill. And they actually burned hotter and longer than a typical charcoal. And they were, you know, upcycling what was traditionally going to be thrown out. And I was like, damn, like this is hella cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I thought they were they were fun. I had a company called Bowza originally or recently go through, which Mark Cuban's an investor in. And they essentially take those little Asian bows that you, you know, you'd see at a, a Chinese restaurant and uh, they put pizza like cheese and pepperoni in them instead. And they're selling like crazy. And it's just one of those like, oh yeah, like this is what seems to be a simple concept of like pizza everyone loves, bows, you know, everyone loves, like let's just combine the two. Another cool company. And I gotta I gotta give shout outs to the the Cleveland brands I've worked with. Uh every key, they're super neat in that, yeah, the product, this little key fob kind of thing just unlocks whether it's your computer or your car or whatever it is, anything oh, electronically. Yeah, yeah. I think what we they're had, doing. We is had super Chris cool. on. I, I didn't oh, realize nice. they, had, they had gone through First Look. Yeah. Yeah, they did well. It's a little harder with tech companies because their cogs are a little bit higher. So I always want to be real conscious of like giving out their product essentially to the investors. But yeah, they did really well. And there's another cool company here in Cleveland called Peaceful Fruits. I don't know if you know Evan. He'd be mm. good for your podcast. Uh, and he was, <laughs> uh, I think he went through Venture for America as oh, well. Wow. Yeah. But he is essentially, his company is like, Remember when we were little kids, there was like fruit by the foot and fruit roll-ups and like gushers and all those things. Yeah. yeah. I am. Well, now that we're older, we realize like those are just like basically like sugar, gummy. I don't know what the hell they were made of. But <laughs> his company is essentially redoing a lot of those things, but actually using like healthier ingredients and making fun shapes and, you know, fruit tape and, uh, but it's good for you. And it's actually just dried fruit and they have a proprietary process of kind of how to get it to the shape and, in the consistency of what we remember as kids, but it's actually good for you. So I could talk all day about <laughs> all the, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting brands, but interesting doesn't always necessarily translate into, is this venture backable or is this going to have, you know, a venture outcome that investors are looking for? Right. Well, we, we had talked a little bit about, you know, the, the unpredictability of, you know, how the brands will evolve and the psychology behind it. But like, with that, are there predictive things that you have seen, you know, coming in, interviewing hundreds, you know, potentially thousands of, of founders 
before or you know through first look is there anything like outside of you know is this founder the the right person for for the job that that can help you gauge you know in in retrospect you know which which of the ones have made it through oh yeah yeah definitely uh, i mean first and foremost i think founders have to have a passion for what they're doing there's a you know a lot of a lot of or, I, mean, I don't say a lot but a good amount of founders out there that will just start a company because they see an opportunity to make money it's great we all have money but when times get dark and it gets tough a lot of times those founders give up because they're not passionate about what they're doing hmm. so i really like it when a founder has like a you know personal experience or a reason of why they're doing it because that's what's going to get them through those hard times after that it, a little bit wild wild west but obviously you have to have a great product a beautiful brand and then for a lot of product it's like distribution you know how do you like be at the right place at the right time and some categories are more straightforward than others. But then the day, you know, if you're product solving uh, an actual pain point that consumers will pay for and you have, you know, brand equity, you know, there's a lot of activity now with celebrities starting brands, which that's, yeah, very hotly debated right now of like, do celebrities, are they, I'm not saying necessary, but like, are, are they a way to like expedite growth for a company? And there are certainly winners out there, you know, where, I mean, right now, Prime Hydration's murdering it, but. Or like the, I just saw the, the Mr. Beast stuff. I mean, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. But for every one of like every one of these like success stories you hear where a celebrity came on board, there is a graveyard of brands where a celebrity got involved and it went nowhere. So it really comes down to, and this is probably true to a degree in tech, but you know, when you build a big business, the end of the day, the product just becomes a widget. I hate to say it because I know founders work hard on these things. And the real magic is actually in your growth story. You know, the grill marketing tactics, the you know strategy that when it came in, you know, for early days of expansion, getting really granular with where you're gonna, you know, set up shop or where what markers you're gonna go after first. Which, you know, let's not gonna do a mm. chocolate brand as they basically put caffeine in their little chocolate bites. I challenged him. I was like, which investment bank in New York? He's based in New York City. Actually, a Cleveland guy. I was like, which which bank in New York City drinks the most coffee per capita or like per employee? That's the exact bank you should be trying or office space that you should be trying to get into first. Because like that's the place you're most likely going to have people that are susceptible to what you're selling. So whether it's JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, whatever it is, like figure out who sucks down the most coffee and then start with there. And then, you know, it's nice because when you, when you get really methodical in your growth strategies, it tells investors, wow, this founder has really done their homework. And then they feel a lot better about giving you money because they know it's going to a good home. And you actually like think about these really careful things about how you're going to grow the brand. So long story short, there are certainly things that signal that you're on the right path and you're probably, you know, hopefully going to do well. But at the end of the day, like there's also still a lot of luck in some of these things. How, how do you think about that for yourself? You know, the, the growth strategies and plans for, for first look and, and, you know, kind of over the, you know, coming months, years, what is the kind of higher level impact that, that you're, you're hoping to achieve here? So I'm bootstrapped and I'll probably always say bootstrapped, which means we grow a little bit slower than everyone else's VC backed. And I'm okay with that. You know, there's pros and cons to both sides. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, I'm in the business of helping people raise VC dollars, so certainly a proponent of it. 
you know, I've always tried to go with a boutique style company. There's plenty of like websites and like services out there that connect founders and investors. But I think a problem with a lot of them is that, you know, investors and like anyone else, I guess, for that matter, like nothing feels better than being let in on a secret. When all of a sudden you open up the floodgates, whether it's on the investor side or the founder side, you lose that that specialness, that that, you know, high touch curation that I try to strive for with first look, which I only pick, you know, seven brands per month to go in out of the hundreds of brands that apply. Yeah, you know, I try to I keep the investor count low on the other side because I want them to make sure that they're feeling like they're seeing deals and opportunities before, you know, their their peers are, before their competition is. So yeah, keeping things much more boutique rather than like, all right, are we going to scale this to a massive level is certainly my goal. You know, as far as getting create, this is, I, there's a quote out there, I forget what it is, but essentially it's like hard times or like basically being broke breeds creativity. Cause you like, you have to, I always think about like, you know, some a lot of musicians have their, their breakout songs when they were at their like lowest, not lowest point, but basically brokest point where like they're sleeping on a friend's couch they had no money to go out to the bars or nothing. All they could do is sit and like make music. And that's what ended up, you know, making their first smash hit that helped them kind of get propelled. Same thing with founders, you know, because I don't have like uh, not swimming in the money. Like I had to be really creative. And one strategy I love to use is creating as far as marketing goes, creating things that are either self-fulfilling or basically super cheap to distribute where it's not like there's not much of like they provide value for people. So for example, I created a public Gmail calendar that has all the events and expos and conferences, pitch competitions, everything for the consumer brand world. Mm-hmm. And I had it just, I would make it for myself at first. Cause I'm like, Oh, I want to know when all these events are. And I just, you know, I was like, wait a minute, I should just share this with like everyone so that every, all, you know, everyone can and, you know see when things are coming or when there's deadlines or, you know, whatever it is. And so I ended up just sharing it with, uh, yeah, the the consumer VC landscape, and everyone loves it. And nice thing now is like, I'm on first look is on you know at least eighteen hundred to two thousand people's calendars, which is arguably some of the most precious real estate on our laptops. Oh, wow. And it costs me nothing except my time, which is to make sure I find these events and add them in and have you know the right dates and everything. But once it's up and going, and now you know I have a little submit button. Where it's like, hey, you have an event that you want to have on here, like submit it here. And now, like now that it's up and running, I don't have to worry about like constantly finding new events. People just submit them to me, and I just add them, you know, if they qualify. And it's great. Cost me nothing except my time. And now it's just self-sustaining, where people just submit events for me. And I'm doing another one right now, where uh, we'll see if this works out. But uh, a newsletter <laughs> called Founder Horror Stories. I might change the name to Founder War Stories. I'm, I'm still split on that, but. To say, you know, all the founders, I'm sure you have plenty of scars from your days as a founder. Like, you know, these moments, you know, at least the consumer little, you know, their stories are like, oh my God, like, you know, all the ingredients were supposed to arrive at our manufacturer. And all of a sudden, like one ingredient couldn't make it. So we had to rent a car and drive from Kansas City to Seattle and go through a snowstorm and we almost crashed and blah, blah, blah. Like they all have these wild stories of how they had to, you know, persevere and, I want to create a newsletter for founders to share those stories. And then hopefully once it gets jump-started, you know, founders just keep submitting their stories. And I literally will just copy and paste them into the newsletter and send it out once a week. And like minimal lift on my part, 
become self-sustaining as it grows. Founders submit their own stories, so I don't have to do much work on it. And yeah, it'll be a great, hopefully a great marketing tool for First Look where it costs me nothing and becomes self-sustaining. Mm. I I personally love that idea. I think uh, it's <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, because it's like it mirrors the the personal social media landscape where I think from the outside it always looks very, you know, good and polished from from the startup perspective. But like obviously <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going very wrong all the time and it's constantly putting out fires. And I think it's I don't know, part part of the fun of this podcast is like hearing, you know, what people have to actually do to <laughs> to make it oh, work. Oh yeah. It's interesting you say that because one of the questions I like to ask uh, founders when I'm, you know, interviewing them and doing due diligence is, uh, what keeps you up at night? You know, in terms of the oh, business, yeah. and because you know everyone's really pretty good at like painting a pretty story of like, oh, we're just murdering it over here. Like, let's let's do this. But when you ask that question of what keeps you up at night, that's when you start getting into like what they're nervous about or what is top of mind for them, and you kind of start getting those deeper stories. So. But yeah, we all have those war stories. You just sometimes don't hear about them until it's like a personal conversation. Uh, but you got to pry them out. I'll pry them out. Well, I'll play it back to you. It's too easy now. You know, what What keeps you up at night? <laughs> oh, man. I, I'm always just wondering if I'm doing the right thing. So a very deep answer to this question is anytime there's a, a tool that comes out that makes fundraising easier for a founder, the old guard, which is all the traditional VCs out there, they usually hate on it because it's competition for them and it changes the dynamics of how they operate or like how hard they have to work for what they're doing. So easy example of this is when those crowdfunding campaigns came out, like Republic, for example, you know, all of, a lot of investors out there were like, oh, if you have to raise on Republic, you must not be a good brand. Like, cause if you, you know, you were, you would just raise the traditional route. And so, you know, from the day one, I've always tried to keep it conscious of that. And, and you know, Republic now, they're they're great. Like, oh, and everyone loves company, them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, there's actually a lot of investors now that the tides turned on them where now investors are like, you know, you should reach from us and you should do a crowdfunding campaign because, you know, you have all these fans and, you know, the, you know, just help support your brand and like, it's a great move. And now like they're embracing it. So at first look, as you know, it's always like, all right, I'm a tool that helps founders, you know, potentially raise rounds faster, which then all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, were you, if you have to go through first look, are you not that great of a brand? The answer is no, obviously. But I've always been conscious about that. And that's why I've always tried my best to like make sure I get absolutely great brands so that I can nix immediately this thought that like, oh, you know, if you had to rely on first look, you must not be that great. Like, obviously not the case. And like, yeah, that's always been a worry of mine from the start. And like, we're, we're far enough into the market now. I mean, we're almost over three years in the market that like we're past that. But it was something I was worried about in the beginning. And it's like a very real thing. Like, because so much of the VC game is about signaling and optics and like. Yep. And exclusivity. And, and you're, yeah. it's like on the opposite end of that spectrum is access and exclusivity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still accusing up to, you know, to a degree tonight, but, or each night. But that was like a huge thing in the early days was being very careful about that. What comes next? You know, what, what, uh, what has you most excited looking forward over, you know, the, the next year when you think about the business? Well, I'd love to get to a point where, cause there's a lot of investors I meet where their focus is too specific for first look right now. Cause the box is agnostic, you know, it has food, bev, beauty, wellness, home goods, pets, every category you imagine. And because of that, I have to find investors that are agnostic when it comes to CPG investing. 
Um, and then there's also investors, you know, they're by stage. Like I only do pre-seed and seed or, you know, I only do series A and above, whatever it is. So I'd love to get to a point where I can start segmenting the boxes out into more specific categories and by stage. And our deal flow is strong right now where I think we have great brands every month, but I'm not sure if it's strong enough yet to be able to consistently put out, you know, two, three boxes each month and feel good about, you know, am I providing value to the investors where, because the moment, you know, they get enough brands that are just like not that great or not that appealing, they're going to ask themselves like, why am I subscribed to First Look? Like, this is a waste. Yeah, I love to, you know, get to that point where our deal flow is strong enough where we can have all these boxes going and all the brands are great and I feel good about them. So that's long-term, you know, nice thing is we built essentially a proprietary deal flow engine, not just deal flow in general, but like anytime you can build an audience, it gives you optionality with like what you can do next. So I'll be adding in some like additional revenue streams this year, like little things. I'm not, not going to be retiring on a beach anytime soon. Yeah. Now that we have like, you know, brands that are finding us and, and there's extra ways to support them beyond just fundraising, hopefully I can capitalize on some of those things. Yeah. Well, that, that was something I wanted to ask about, uh, because at the, at the onset, you know, you mentioned that it's, it's really just about the, the one-time facilitation, but you know, if how your relationship with the brands can evolve over time, you know, outside of, you know, this kind of one-time transaction. Yeah. I call it splash. One splash. big splash in the box. Uh, I mean, with all, with all <laughs> the brands, cause I mean, you know, it was June in 2020 is when I started sending the first box out. And like some of those brands, you know, they're, they've already raised like one or two rounds since then. So any brand that I work with, I always say like, you're always happy to like, you're always welcome to jump in the boxes uh, whenever you'd like for your next rounds. Um, so I try to support them basically through their whole, you know, growth path and like different rounds that they're raising. But yeah, we'll, we'll, I got a few things cooking as far as like how to help brands. We got, I'm working on something right now with helping brands get onto the shelves of like DSD and like independent distributors, which I think is super exciting. You know, cause the way I think about it is like, all right, I have the attention of these brands. They trust that, you know, I do the work, at least I work hard for them. And I've never been the kind of guy that like, there's always people that try to hit, you know, do partnerships with first look and like, I don't know, those never work out. And I've always been, you know, this came from working on my accelerator days, you know, founders like hate it when they're, when they become like a horse and pony show. And so I've never, you know, I've just always having the founders respect. I've never tried to like dangle things in front of them that help me make more money, even though I don't, you know, I might not know how well this like tech solution or whatever Shopify plugin or whatever it may be like yeah. SMS service, whatever it is. Like I always try to be really careful with that. And I, you know, if I ever do sh share things with them, which I do have like a bi-monthly kind of private email, I send to all the founders, which is cool things I'm seeing, but I never financially make money off them. I, it's just cool things that I see. And I think they, you know, they respect that. Like I don't just, I'm not a sellout essentially, even though it'd be great to make more money, but I rather have their respect. And so it's like, when you think of the biggest issues that these, you know, consumer brands uh, have is like, first is like, I need investor money to grow or to like get this going. And the second biggest thing is like, how do I get sales? And so yeah, right now I'm working on something that basically solves for, getting on shelves and getting in front of consumers and, and sales. So as long as that works out and then start building a track record with the syndicate, I would love someday to start a fund here in Cleveland that invests in consumer brands. And then we leverage first look 
and this other company to actually help brands, you know, succeed and uh, basically just help put Cleveland on the map when it comes to startups, VC investing. That's the dream. Yeah. It's a shared passion and enthusiasm for for supporting founders that, that we have. So I, <laughs> I love it. Love what you're doing. Yeah. You know, Cleveland's a great, well, I love Cleveland. So everything I say is course me bias, <laughs> but Cleveland's great from, you know, my goal since I moved back is, and this is like literally a decade or two long goal is like to make Cleveland the next Austin. So I don't know if you follow, but Austin is uh, quite the hotbed for consumer brand startups. Obviously New York's New York, LA and Bay area. Those will always be like, big markets, but Austin is like arguably probably the third or fourth, like hottest market for consumer brands. I'm not even sure why, to be honest with you, it just kind of like happened. But now look, Austin's getting super, you know, pretty overcrowded. Traffic's bad. They, you know, it's still a great city. Don't get me wrong. My goal is to make Cleveland the next Austin in terms of consumer brands. And my argument for that is that 60% of the U S population is within a one day's drive of Ohio which translates to product can de- get delivered to 60% of the nation in one day. Uh, we got unlimited water, clean, fresh water. Awesome. We have a heavy manufacturing background. So there's a lot of infrastructure here for it. Yeah. And then, you know, I love what Mayor Bibb's doing with the city. Sort of just making it very like up and coming and progressive. The only thing we need to get going here is like tying in the, or like the educational institutions, the universities and colleges to like help foster that environment. So I would love for us to like, you know, whether it's, you know, Stanford, like is such a great feeder system for the Bay area. Carnegie Mellon does great with all things in Pittsburgh and like, you know, autonomous, uh, autonomous driving and cars. Yeah. I'd love for Cleveland to like basically become, you know, a city where all the resources are there. The talent, the pool is there. The money's there uh, to build something amazing. I think we can do it. I'm right there with you. You know, we'll pull it together. We can do it. We got it. <laughs> well, very cool. I'll leave a, a greenfield, you know, question for you here, given the kind of breadth of stuff that we've talked about. Are, are there any, you know, parts to the the first look story to, to your story that you feel are particularly important that we haven't uh, touched on yet? I'm sure a lot of other founders, every founder probably deals with this, but like, yeah, there's just some days where I don't know if I'm doing the right thing or yeah, am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? It can be stressful at times. But it's one of those things where like, you know, I always try to find balance in that like, I'm not like a surgeon where, you know, if I don't do something right, someone dies. Like I always try to remember like, don't have fun. And it's not life or death situations here. And then I also think it's important to like, you know, when six o'clock or six thirty, whenever like hits, like close the laptop, like, and be okay with the fact that like, Oh my God, I'm not putting in 24 hour, eight days a week work. And like, Oh my God, can I make it like, you know, there's a lot of people that don't get a chance to maybe like pursue their dreams as much or are doing things that, you know, for a living that they don't like. So any day that, yeah, I always try to remind myself that like, Hey, I'm doing something that I enjoy. So can't be too hard on myself, but it's tough. I mean, you know, how it is with the founder being a founder. Like there's always like that moment or those moments where you're like, am I doing this right? Am I doing enough? Like, it can be stressful. Yeah. Startups, I feel, have a way of exacerbating the highs and lows to very, you know, extremes uh, where it's very high and it's very low. And, the you know, you it, when you're trying to maintain balance, you you can't let the, the highs get too high and the lows too lows. And you, you have to have fun along the way. And, <laughs> you know, the, that stuff matters a lot. 
Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's like time's always going to pass by anyway. So at least try to do something that you enjoy. Well, I'll, uh, I'll throw our uh, traditional closing question at you before we, we wrap up here, which uh, I'm very curious what you're going to say is for <laughs> not your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for a hidden gem, something that you know other folks should know about, uh, but maybe they don't. My food and restaurants are like weird picks. Like I love Skyline Chili, which I know people are probably cringing at the sound of that. I do like Swenson's, unbelievable. And then I'm a huge proponent of Cozumel because I love Mexican food. As far as hidden gems go though, man, the towpath in Brexville in the Metro Parks, oh my God, it's like, especially in the summer, like it's the most beautiful walk you'll ever have. And I'm actually not like, I'm not even crazy to say that because Palatine Bikes, they added the towpath as an option for people to bike on, like, you know, you see it through the screen, but like they realize it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. It's an option for, yeah, I guess there's people all over whoever oh, has wow. Palatine. I didn't, I didn't realize yeah. that. So yeah, that's my biggest hidden gem is uh, going on a walk on the Brexel, uh, the towpath down in the Metro parks. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, that's fantastic. But, you know, maybe it's not going to be so so hidden anymore. <laughs> yeah, actually, no one should go there. It's uh, real <laughs> ugly and bad. Cause, and I don't want you guys uh, getting real busy on the walkways there. So, uh, no, it's great. Yeah, no, it, it is pretty special. Well, Brian, I, I really appreciate, you know, your, your time and, and coming on and, uh, you know, sharing a little bit more about yourself and, and the work you're doing at First Look. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. This is great. Obviously, big fan of the podcast. Big fan of everything you're doing for the city. Looking forward to next happy hour with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I am as well. If people had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, or you know, maybe they want to get into the to the next box, you know, what is the the best way for them to do so? You're always welcome to email me. I'm just at Brian at firstlook.vc. Uh, Brian with an I. I spell it correctly. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah, I'd be obviously our socials just pretty much at firstlookvc on across the board. Um, but yeah, happy to chat with anyone, especially anyone in Cleveland. I'm even more excited to help you guys out because when we build up our community, then it just makes everything better uh, in the future. So yeah, always open to chat. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Appreciate it, Jeffrey. We'll talk soon. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.